Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, October 9th, and we're talking about capital allocation, or put a different way, what gets companies and investors paid. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined in the studio by Fool.com's Matt Frankel. Matt, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It gives me occasion to wear my headset twice a year. (laughs) Awesome. All right. (laughs) So so we had a listener question, by the way, thank you for writing in, about buybacks and dividends. And this was spurred by last week's discussion on whether banks should be able to chart their own course on buybacks and dividends or whether they should ask the federal government for permission. And the question basically came down to, well, are share buybacks and for that matter, dividends a good thing? Great question. By the way, folks, if you ever have any questions based on any of our episodes, industryfocus at fool.com. We thought we'd address that issue even more broadly by looking at capital allocation across the board. So companies can spend money, generally speaking, in one of four ways. They can do share buybacks. They can institute a dividend. They can do mergers and acquisitions, which we call inorganic growth, aka you're buying growth. And they can do organic growth, or think of it as homegrown growth, like when a business decides to go into a new business line or in some other way try to create growth without buying it from somebody else. But when does each make sense? Matt, you're a talker, I'm a talker, so we're going to have to commit to running through this stuff pretty quickly. So let's start with the initial question, share buybacks and dividends. And let's start with share buybacks specifically. When do share buybacks make sense? Um, There's a few situations where buybacks can make sense. First of all, uh, dividends and buyback together are kind of ways a company is admitting that it doesn't need the money as much to grow anymore. In other words, it's kind of a sign of a maturing company. That's why you see companies like Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson pay dividends, but companies that are trying to put all their money into growth, like, say, Netflix, don't. Yeah, um, and, and that's I, I would even argue that it's a, it's a sign that it, when a company basically says, hey, we are making more money than we can redeploy into the business itself is when buybacks really, and dividends for that matter, really make sense. It's essentially saying, hey, we're making a billion dollars. We can't spend more than, I don't know, let's say $800 million of it effectively for the business, so let's return the rest. Right. And another way is, um, another reason buybacks can make good sense is when a stock is trading for less than its net asset value, less than its book value, or just less than the company thinks it's worth. A uh, good example of that is uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a really good example of that, where they set a specific level. I think it's a, a 140% a book, if I'm remembering correctly. It's moved around say, a little bit um, over the years. <laughs> yeah, it moves over the years, and it's honestly probably going to go up again soon. But where Warren Buffett says, okay, now it's at a discount to what it's actually worth, so we can use money on share buybacks. So that's another good example of a reason where buybacks would make sense. Yeah, um, I'll also throw out there. Occasionally, in a in a financial engineering sense, buybacks can make good sense. So let's just draw, let's just draw a scenario. Take an example. A company is paying a four percent dividend, and they can take on debt at say one percent. Well, in that case, it would make sense for them to buy back shares and perhaps even buy back shares taking on some debt, so that they could then reduce their dividend exposure because they're trading essentially $4 per share, or 4%, let's say it's $4, just make it easy, $4 per share of dividend expense and trading it for a dollar per share of interest expense. And that can basically free up more money that they can then use more effectively. Now, on the flip side, share buybacks often don't make a lot of sense. However, one of the key things that you pointed out, Matt, is that 
companies can use share buybacks effectively when the company is trading for less than it really should be worth. But management is notoriously bad at timing this kind of thing. And I would also say a lot of times companies think that they're worth a great deal more than they really are. A great example of this is Bank of America from 2003 to 2007 bought back around $40 billion in shares. And as a result of doing so, they they reduced their share count significantly. But a year and a half later, the financial crisis hit. The Federal Reserve required them to raise more money. And so, at a quarter of the price per share, they ended up having to raise about $48 billion. So, they had retired 768 million shares. They then had to issue 3.5 billion new shares. So, this was a case where what might have seemed to make sense in the short term really didn't in the long term and effectively destroyed shareholder value. And it's also interesting to point out that at the time you're referring to, Bank of America was trading at about double its book value. Right. So the the writing was kind of on the wall that it might not be a, a great time to buy back a ton of shares. Absolutely. The other piece that's key to remember with share buybacks is that management is often incentivized with shares. And to be fair, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It essentially says, hey, guess what? A significant portion of your compensation is going to be tied to these shares. Uh, Drive shareholder value, and you will drive value for yourself as well. So it's intended to align management's goals financially, personally, with shareholders. But all too often, the share buyback essentially is just sort of papering over that dilution and just sort of buying back the shares that management has. And so, what you really want to see with the share buyback for it to be really effective is for it to actually reduce share count over time. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's usually easy to kind of keep track of a company's share count over time. If you look at like a, I don't know, a Yahoo Finance or pretty much any kind of stock quote that's out there, you can usually see the stock, the share count at the end of each fiscal year, and it's also in the company's annual report. So, that's kind of a good metric to check on. Yeah, absolutely. One other point about share buybacks, uh, one of the things that makes them attractive to companies in a lot of ways is that they aren't as difficult to cut as dividends. Um, whereas dividends, there's sort of a, a different expectation with them. So, let's let's talk about dividends a little bit. Sure. Um, well, like you said, dividends are kind of the most visible way to return capital to shareholders, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing if a company can pay a reasonable dividend, establish a good record of increasing their dividend payments. There's a whole group of stocks called the dividend aristocrats, which have all increase their dividend payments annually for at least 25 years, some much more than that. And in that case, it could be kind of a kind of a selling point in a way for investors that here's kind of predictable, steady rising income. Of course, it's not guaranteed, but it definitely looks good as an investment. Absolutely. And by the way, if you're interested in a list of the dividend aristocrats, send us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, and we'll be happy to shoot you a link to a list. Again, that's industryfocus@fool.com. Now, the other thing is dividends can be attractive for income investors. So, those are often retirees or people who are looking for some sort of minimum annual return on their investments. You know, if it's a 2% dividend or a 3% dividend, they know that barring something crazy happening, they're probably going to get paid at least that. And that really can help from a financial planning standpoint. On the flip side, dividends often stop making sense. And that's when companies have to cut them. Because essentially, as we said earlier, with share buybacks and dividends, it's this sort of realization that a company cannot 
spend all of its money in accretive ways to the company. So instead, they're going to do share buybacks and dividends. Well, sometimes companies are in a spot where, well, that's no longer the case, and they actually don't have enough cash flow to be able to grow appropriately with. You know these sort of capital allocation decisions they previously made. Teva Pharmaceuticals from my own healthcare is a great example. They substantially cut their dividend uh, just a couple of months ago, specifically because they're weighed down with interest expense. They'd made a big acquisition, and they had so many expenses that it was hampering their growth. So cutting their dividend was the only way for them to be able to really invest in growth appropriately. Of course, the stock got creamed when that happened. I mean, I think Table lost something like 50% of its market cap in the month of August when it made this announcement. So, it was just, it was a rough month for Table shareholders. But on the flip side, it's like, well, at that point, it kind of makes sense and you want them, I think, to cut that dividend so that they can instead grow shareholder value in other ways. Right, it would almost be irresponsible to keep paying it at that point, but like you said since it's the most visible way to return capital, is taken by shareholders as a sign of the company being unhealthy. Whereas, like you just said, the cutting the dividend was probably the healthiest thing they could have done in that situation. Right. Of course, it is kind of a sign of unhealthiness too, right? Like, you know, when, when you can no well, longer meet all those commitments, then, well, that's uh, kind of where you're stuck. Definitely. Um, so, like it's It works both ways. Dividend, a dividend record can either be a good thing or a bad thing. And you want to make sure, companies need to make sure that they can reasonably continue to pay a dividend if they want to implement one. Yeah, so much matters on context, unfortunately. And that's one of the things that I think is really frustrating for a lot of investors. There aren't a lot of really simple, hard and fast rules. So much depends on the situation. So you, that's why doing your research and really understanding companies is so important. Okay, so let's turn over to actually investing in business growth. So there are two primary ways, mergers and acquisitions, again, that's inorganic growth, you're buying growth from somebody else, and organic growth, which is kind of when you invest uh, per, uh, in, in your own business. So let's talk about mergers and acquisitions first, because this is, this is the flashy stuff, right, that always ends up in the headlines, so-and-so bought so-and-so for a billion dollars, and that's really, I think, what, when people really start paying attention to investments. Right. Um, one, of the, one of the most common questions I get when it comes to M&A is, why are companies willing to pay more than a stock is worth? Because generally, when you, a company gets bought out, shareholders get, I get you know, a 20% premium or something to that effect. And it, the answer is generally because the business could be worth more to the acquirer than it was as a standalone company. A good example is that Amazon Whole Foods deal. I think Amazon paid about, what, $14 billion in change for that? Something like that. Um, that it, it opens up a new sector for Amazon, whereas building that organically would have, I mean, I, I could bet cost more than that. So <clears throat> that's a good reason for M&A um, and a reason why companies are willing to pay a premium for to acquire another company. Yeah, and I would say, even dragging it back to financials for a minute, so think about when Berkshire Hathaway makes an acquisition. So making up numbers here, but let's say there's a company trading for a, it's got a billion dollar market cap, Berkshire pays a billion five, 1.5 billion, and then invests another billion dollars into the company. So, total cost, if you think about it as sort of this billion dollar company, it costs 2.5 billion total in terms of both their immediate financial investment and then sort of money that they put in toward capital expenditures. But what if that company, that billion dollar company, 
you know, was legitimately worth a billion dollars at the time. But if, but with that 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 additional billion dollars that's been invested in it, it has the ability to really ramp up growth and become worth, let's say, ten billion dollars ten years down the road. Well, then suddenly that two point five billion that Berkshire paid looks like a steal because you've got a quadruple in ten years, and that looks pretty darn good. And that's really been a lot of Buffett's philosophy in approaching companies. Not saying that he's necessarily willing to pay 50% above asking or, or above the market price or anything like that, but that's right. why it's been De- so attractive. Definitely. And the point is that that allows the company to achieve growth that it wouldn't have been able to achieve as a standalone company. Right. And I think one of the key things here is growth. And you know, when we've been talking about this, we've been talking about you know either it's doubling down on the same strategy, you know, you're you're buying out a competitor, a direct competitor, or you're trying to like Amazon with Whole Foods, kind of get into a, a different niche of the market. I'm very skeptical when people are talking about oh, this is going to work out with cost synergies. Basically, we're going to combine our back office operations and save enough money that it's going to be worth it. I tend to find that that is problematic at best. Yeah, it's. Are cost synergies a real thing? Yes. Do they help? Yes. Is it worth paying a 25% premium for a company? Usually not. <laughs> yeah. It's probably point. the best way I could put it. Yeah. And, and, and let's talk. So here's a, a, a good example of a bad merger, I guess. Or at least uh, had it gone through, it would have been a bad merger. New York Community Bancor uh, attempted to buy Astoria. Yes. Um, New York Community Bancor is. It's one of the highest dividend bank stocks, and for a reason. It's intentionally paid a high dividend for years to remain under the $50 billion regulatory cap. Um, That allows it to, you know, keep its regulatory costs low and avoid becoming what's called a systematically important financial institution, I think is what the acronym stands for. Right, or or Um, (laughs) SIFI. Yes. Um, And they decided to acquire a story of financial, which would have put them well over the $50 billion cap. Um, shareholders immediately kind of resented the acquisition idea. It actually wound up falling apart, which drove the stock down even more because there's a lot of unanswered questions as to why it fell apart. They weren't very clear on that. Um, but that's an acquisition that would actually have cost the company more. Not only that, Astoria was not an, as nearly as an efficient bank as New York Community. And it would have just kind of, it would have added to costs, it would have lowered its efficiency, which is its big competitive advantage, and just kind of created a lot of problems within with shareholders. Um, that's not why they invested in the bank in the first place. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the key things to point out here is that New York Community Bancorp was in a really, really, attr- or still is, I guess, in a really, really attractive niche, right? Of specifically, uh, I think it's rent control departments in New York. Yeah, that's pretty much the only. Uh, I think something like eighty percent of their loan portfolio is rent controlled or rent stabilized buildings in Manhattan. Right. So it's it's just about all there. You know, Astoria would have diversified it a great deal, but it might have. It certainly looked like it could have been diversification instead of diversification in terms of sort of putting it into a lot of less attractive market areas. And so I think for a lot of reasons that merger looked pretty problematic to shareholders. Right. And no, nobody leaves a rent control department building. Well, very, very few people do. If you ask, if you've any friends in New York who have them, um, but people leave, you know, single-family homes go fall into foreclosure a lot more frequently. Things like things that are on a story as balance sheet that would have kind of diluted the the advan- the competitive advantage, which is what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, so there's just sort of a, a little bit of thinking about when a merger and acquisition can make sense and when it seems a little bit more problematic. Let's finally turn to organic growth. Now, this one is really, really tough to get your arms around. It's sort of, you know, when's it effective to do organic growth? Generally speaking, that's the preference because what that usually means is that you you know the people who are doing the work, and usually you know the work pretty well. You know, if you're a bank and you're invested in single-family mortgages, and you're basically trying to write more business, you have a pretty good sense of what the trade-offs are there. If you're a bank and you usually do single-family homes and you're trying to move into multifamily, sure, you're moving into a new business, but generally speaking, you know what people you're putting on that business, and so you therefore can really understand what that risk looks like on a uh, on an initial basis as you really kind of begin that ramp. Sure. Um, you said all things being equal, organic growth is a preferred way to grow and you want the the right way to do organic growth is to invest in something that is going to immediately add to your not necessarily immediately but to add to your business maybe open up a new channel of growth uh goldman sachs is one of my favorite examples of recent times they have been pumping money into their new online lending platform it's it's kind of like a lending club but without other people lending money, it's Goldman Sachs lending the money. Right. And and it's already surpassed a billion dollars in loans quicker than any of the other online platforms have. That's an example of good organic growth. They saw a market that was kind of that they felt like they could do a better job of capturing and have been pumping money into it and are willing to pump money into it because they have it, first of all, and because they want to grow it the right way to be a new permanent channel of growth for them. Right. And I think that's that's really crucial, right? Because you can organically grow in, in businesses you're already doing. You can organically grow in businesses that are, let's say, pretty close to what you're doing. I mean, again, Goldman Sachs is a bank, right? So lending money is theoretically something they should be, you know, let's say, reasonably good at. Sure. I, I think the third thing as well is when you can find ways to invest money to make what you currently do better, more efficient, more customer friendly. Uh, a great example of this being the Starbucks app, right? And if you don't have it, personally, I think it's fantastic. But essentially, Starbucks recognized that they could make transactions go faster. They could really personalize offers for customers. They could drive more transactions and drive more business, drive more foot traffic if they really invested in their technology portfolio. And so they did. And it's gone really well when a lot of other food and drink service establishments have struggled. Starbucks has been doing really well. And as a shareholder, I'm thrilled. Right. Was, I, I don't know yeah. the numbers, but I, I bet Starbucks invested billions in developing their mobile platform. Oh, I'm sure. And, and it's so they slick. capture people like me who, if I see 20 people in line in front of me, I'll keep driving. Right. <laughs> but I can order before I leave my house and my coffee's there. That's a you know a five dollar sale they wouldn't have gotten. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's not something that really on the surface on day one maybe looked like it would drive a lot of money. I mean, sure, you know, it might make things a little bit faster, a little bit more efficient. Maybe it would capture a few people, but it's really making a big difference. Even though it's not you know investing in a new business line or in investing in um, a different part of the current business line. It's really just something that kind of across the board is making the entire business stickier. Yeah, it's just kind of doing their business better is how I would put it. Right. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So with all that in mind, there's a lot here about thinking about capital allocation. But the the key 
thing here is that you want a management team that is good at capital allocation because if they know what they're doing, then they will make the right mergers and acquisitions. They will invest in organic growth when it makes sense, and they won't just be slavishly devoted to the dividend and the buyback. Those are important tools, but they are not nearly as important as investing in the business and making sure that the business long term has a moat and is really successfully growing. Right. Um, if I can throw in just one more example, that's uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is a, just they're really a great example of everything. That's why we keep bringing them up. But um, he's he's publicly prioritized the way that he will use Berkshire's cash. Mm-hmm. Cash and number one is always make sure the current business needs are met first. Be that growth, be that just kind of capital requirements, whatever. Number two is always to acquire new companies that will add value to Berkshire, kind of how Michael described buying a $1 billion company for $1.5 billion and sinking money into it. That's number two. A distant third and fourth are dividends and buybacks. So it's he. it kind of tells you that Warren Buffett doesn't feel that Berkshire is a, a overly mature company yet, even though it's worth about $400 billion. Right. And it's it's hard to argue with one of the world's best money managers and, frankly, business managers. But that's its own long conversation, and I'm sure we could devote <laughs> whole episodes just to that. In fact, we have in the past. So again, folks, if you want that list of dividend aristocrats, just send us an email, industryfocus@full.com. That's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments? Again, you can reach us at industryfocus@full.com or on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about. I own a couple that we've talked about. And the Motley Fool. Well. Yeah. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening and Fool on.